We are talking once again with Maria Tomchik, local writer and activist, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. So we've got an election coming up later this mm-hmm. year, but we've also got one coming up uh, pretty soon that uh, people are going to be getting ballots for. Yeah, on February 14th, that's Valentine's Day. Uh, there will be a vote in the city of Seattle on the Seattle Public Housing Initiative I-135 to create a new public development authority called the Seattle Social Housing Developer to build public housing in Seattle that will serve a mix of income levels. So not just folks who are 50 percent or less of area median income. Uh, the initiative is endorsed by a number of labor groups social justice organizations, and uh, housing and homelessness service providers, including, and I'm just going to name a few, the Black Brilliance Research Project, Choose 180, Community Passageways, Disability Rights Washington, Lilo, the Lived Experience Coalition, Lehigh, Nicholsville, the Statewide Poverty Action Network, Puget Sound Sage, Real Change, SHARE, Solid Ground and the Tenants Union of Washington State, among many, many others and many uh, labor organizations. So uh, that's coming up. You'll be receiving your ballot in the mail soon. And I got make mine. Sure, yeah, make sure that you mark your ballot and uh, get it back in, get it back into the mail with enough time for your vote to be counted. All right. So um, Seattle City Council candidates. Yeah, a couple of candidates now in uh, District 3 for Shama Sawant's seat. Last week, Shama Sawant announced that she was not running for re-election, and uh, Joy Hollingsworth announced that she was running for election in District 3. This week, another candidate stepped into the race. Uh, Alex Hudson, the director of the Transportation Choices Coalition, and uh, former director of the First Hill Improvement Association is also running. Uh, she gave an interview to Publicola. Hudson talked about how the city needs to do better on Vision Zero and transportation safety. That's a topic that Joy Hollingsworth has also spoken out about. Uh, Hudson also um, talked a little bit. Uh, Publicola asked her some questions about some of the hot button topics in the city, like homelessness and encampment sweeps. But Hudson waffled a little bit on encampment sweeps, saying that she recognizes that they don't help homeless people uh, actually stabilize and get housing and the services they need. But at the same time, she supported the encampment sweep at Miller Park near Meany Middle, Middle School. So a uh, little bit of a mixed message there, and that she's still trying to work out uh, how she feels or what she thinks about the city's homelessness policies. She did, however, uh, voice strong opposition to businesses putting concrete blocks in the street to block parking spaces for folks who are living out of their cars or their RVs. So um, that's kind of the takeaway from her early interview with Publicola. Joy Hollingsworth was also interviewed by Publicola this week. Uh, she also talked about transportation safety in neighborhoods in the Central District and South End. She also discussed gentrification in those neighborhoods and ways that the city might help homeowners of color convert their homes to uh, duplexes or triplexes instead of selling to a developer who then tears down the home and builds multifamily housing that is uh, higher priced there and and then draws in uh predominantly white wealthier residents 
and is a dri- main driver of gentrification. Now, Hollingsworth also stressed that the city doesn't do a great job adding services to neighborhoods with increasing density. So, for example, you know, increased parking, you know, the city makes an assumption that a developer can come in and build a multifamily housing with uh, no parking at all. And the, the assumption is that, well, it's near enough to a bus route or, you know, it's in inner city enough that the new residents won't need parking because they won't have automobiles. But, you know, this is America and it doesn't matter if people are moving closer into the center of the city. People still want their to have their cars, unfortunately. And in a lot of neighborhoods with increasing density comes increasing traffic and increasing parking uh, issues and uh, lots and lots of problems, associated problems, including increasing air pollution. So that's, I think, a major issue for a lot of the gentrifying neighborhoods in the in the central area and south end is, you know, the city's allowing developers to come in, tear down single family homes, uh, not providing enough incentives for the folks who live there or who inherit a home after after an older person has passed and may want to want to turn that home into into multifamily housing. The city makes it harder not easier for that to happen. And so oftentimes those those houses get sold to developers, then, you know, in comes additional residents, in comes the additional traffic, you know, stress on sewer lines, etc. So uh, I think that was a pretty good point. Now, uh, notably, in her interview with Publicola, Hollingsworth was asked about, she was asked about public safety and homelessness encampment sweeps, Hollingsworth did support Bruce Harrell in his recent campaign for mayor. And she also appears to be supporting the homeless encampment sweeps and Harrell's policy of just pushing folks around the city in order to try to, I don't know, try to make homeless people disappear, I guess, which is not, you know, happening, obviously. And Hollingsworth also supports Harold's position of hiring more police officers, particularly, quote unquote, good officers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that concept of good officers here later, who she believes can help get the Seattle Police Department set up to have great response times to 911 calls. That's, you know, straight up Harold policy right there. Neither candidate, neither Joy Hollingsworth nor Alex Hudson openly said that they'd support civilian teams responding to 911 calls. Now, it is uh, pretty early in the race, and um, those candidates may change their positions as they do more research and as they uh, start doing more campaigning, talking to and listening to the residents of their district. But these early interviews can be really helpful in showing you where these candidates are initially coming from, and early interviews can be very revealing. So I thought I would uh, mention uh, some of these, some of the things we know about these two candidates right off the bat. Yeah, and I'd like to point out it's it's a slightly wide brush, but I'd like to point out that um, Transportation Choices Coalition fielded a previous candidate before who was goes by the name of Rob Johnson. Who yes. <laughs> turned out to be good quite point. different than a lot of people um, anticipated. So, Yes, good point. Okay. Moving on, the King County Regional Housing Authority 
uh, drafted a new plan? The Regional Homelessness Authority, yeah. Homeless. They released their draft five-year plan this week. Now, they had been discussing it with the city council. I think I remember last year I talked about a presentation they made to the city council about the elements uh, that were going to be uh, in this draft five-year plan. Uh, the plan that they released, that they've released in the last, in the, I think they released it about a week and a half ago, mm-hmm. or just, or perhaps, yeah, about a week and a half ago, I think. It's been released now for public comment on their website. It includes cost estimates, which they had not talked about previously. Those cost estimates are for building enough shelter to uh, get homeless folks off the street in King County. So this is not affordable housing. This is shelter. And the cost estimates, uh, and I'm just going to line out the four main uh, items in that list, for non-congregate shelter and emergency housing, emergency shelter, they said over the five-year plan, it would cost $2 billion. For recuperative housing for folks with special medical needs, $2.6 billion. For addiction recovery housing, $1.8 billion. And for safe parking in RV lots, $193 million. So that's a total of $6.6 billion dollars with an additional annual operating cost of $1.2 billion. And, of course, some folks are expressing major sticker shock because that is a lot of money. Now, in comparison, uh, this year, Governor Jay Inslee has proposed a bill to issue state bonds to raise $4 billion for new affordable housing all across the state of Washington. So $6.6 billion for just shelter housing in King County seems like an unreachable goal right off the top, right? Right. But the numbers come with a major footnote, okay? And it's important to to think about how these numbers can change if we address this issue. That footnote is if the city, state, and county are able to build more affordable housing – or get more affordable housing to be built by the private market or or nonprofits or however uh, they can do it, then much less money may be needed for new shelter space. That's the footnote. Mm. And remember that about 45% or nearly half of the homeless folks in King County don't need services or supportive housing or transitional housing or drug treatment. They just need rent that's affordable. So that, you know, that $6.6 billion could be decreased substantially with more affordable housing. Those 45% of the homeless in King County could go straight from, you know, living in their car or, or living in a tent to living in an affordable apartment if rent is, is, uh, less than it is now. Average rent in Seattle, it's fallen slightly over the past six months, but it's still very high. Median rent in Washington state in total is $2,312. In the greater Seattle-Tacoma area, median rent is over $2,800 per month. That's crazy. And, yeah, and that's crazy. And that's why we have so many people living on the street or sleeping in their cars or in RVs. Okay. Yeah. So there's the question of, you know, how do you raise some of the money, you know, even if you're not thinking that you're going to eventually need $6.6 billion, even if you think maybe you're only going to need half that, how do you raise the money for building more shelter? And, of course, the answer is always going to be taxes, right? Tax the rich. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, I mean, Shama Sawant is not wrong when she says we need to tax the rich. It's it's the immediate answer that comes into your mind, because part of the reason why uh, rent is so unaffordable is that those sky high rents that we pay go somewhere. Right. They go into the pockets of people who already have a ton of money and who are not paying their fair share in terms of taxes. That money really needs to circulate back into the economy if you're not going to have uh, uh, an underclass that is getting poorer and poorer, losing their homes and growing larger with every passing day. Of course, one of the ways to to levy more taxes in the state of Washington could be a wealth tax. That's something that the that the uh, state legislature is currently looking at. A 1% tax on wealth, uh, the 700 or so people who live in Washington state who have assets over $250 million, an amount that I should say is almost incomprehensible when you start thinking about what could you ever spend $250 million on. I mean, and there are people who have well above that amount. So that begs the question of why and what uh, good does that do society when you have so many people living on the street? Didn't you just talk about that uh, the five-year plan included uh, around just over $200 million for the um, parking mm-hmm. uh, for vehicles? You know, that would have covered that nut right there. You know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. One person. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, of course, Washington, we don't have an income tax. But, you know, working on, working on a constitutional amendment, in the state of Washington to change that would be helpful. Um, and of course, this week, the, the Washington State Supreme Court heard arguments in the case against the capital gains tax, which the legislature passed in 2021 and which went into effect in 2022. Uh, it was put on hold because of the lawsuit against it. But then in November, the Washington State Supreme Court said they would take up the case and they lifted the ban on allowing the tax to be collected by the state. So this spring, the state of Washington, the Washington Department of Revenue, is has set up a website for uh, those very, very wealthy taxpayers to pay the capital to figure out and pay the capital gains tax that they owe. Uh, based on their capital gains in 2022. So the state of Washington is is moving forward in collecting that tax, and the Washington State Supreme Court is currently hearing the arguments in the case, and will be deciding that eventually. It may, may be a while before they come back with a decision, or they may come back with it very quickly in order to meet the April 15th deadline so that the Department of Revenue doesn't have to issue refunds if they overturn the tax. We'll see. Now, if you want to read the draft five-year plan on the King County Regional Homelessness Authority's website, uh, their website is kcrha.org. And when you're there at kcrha.org, just click on the News tab at the top, and you'll see it as, I think it's right now, the second item listed under their News section. There's a there's an announcement there of the draft plan with a link to the the elements of it, the executive summary and the full text if you want to read it. All right. OK, moving on. Uh, state legislature this week. Oh, yeah. Uh, bills are starting to move 
through committee. There's a few that have reached the House floor and uh, some about a half a dozen or so have passed the House and are already headed to committees in the Senate. There are three of note that I wanted to to just mention quickly. Right at the top of my list is House Bill 1046, uh, which would allow public housing authorities to finance affordable housing that would serve people making up to 80% of area median income instead of just the 50% of AMI under current state law. Uh, this is meant to do two things. So first, it's meant to fill in some of the missing middle income housing that uh, we're missing in in cities like Seattle, right? And two, it's to help stabilize the finances of public housing authorities. If those authorities can collect a little more in rent from at least some of their tenants, uh, they can more easily expand. Uh, they can do they can do the renovations that they need to do to keep their buildings on active and able to house people safely. They can also perhaps acquire more existing buildings and convert them to affordable housing. So this was considered a win-win-win uh, bill, and it passed the House unanimously with just a couple of people absent. Wow. Yeah, so that was, that, that was uh, interesting. Another bill that passed, these don't address housing, but they're, they're very interesting to me. House Bill 1179 allows the Washington State Auditor to obtain criminal history records uh, when performing an audit of any investigations into police use of deadly force in Washington state. Under state law, the state auditor can do an audit of any investigation into the use of force in Washington. And this bill now allow, this bill would allow the auditor's office to obtain criminal records that uh, pertain to that type of audit. So, um, and only for, for that type of audit, no, and in no other type of audit. So I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. Wow. That, passed, that-, <clears throat> that passed the House and is on its way to the Senate. Is mm-hmm. the uh, auditor position one that is uh, designated by the governor, or is that a uh, position we uh, vote on? That's a good question, and you can find that information. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the third bill that uh, passed this week is House Bill 1199. It would prevent uh, common interest communities, and common interest communities are things like condo associations or homeowner associations, from prohibiting the use of a unit as a licensed daycare or family home child care center. This is meant to make uh, child care centers more available and more affordable for Folks who are strugg- for folks who are struggling to find affordable daycare and uh, have to have to juggle a, a ton of, of of you know taking their kids to their sister's house or and then next day taking them to the grandparents and then the next day one parent has to stay home and work from home that kind of situation that many many families are in in Washington State. So I found that to be a very interesting one and one that I think will be very helpful for folks who are struggling to find affordable daycare. Okay. And uh, do you have the bill number for that? Yeah, that's House Bill 1199. And that passed the House uh, and is on its way to the Senate. Great. There are lots and lots of bills that are still in committee. Uh, If you're interested in watching some of the videos of committee meetings, 
uh, in the state legislature. A lot happens in the committees, especially testimony for and against bills and uh, discussions by the committee members on different bills. They also will hear research presentations by different, quote unquote, experts <laughs> on those bills. It can be interesting to see who they consider experts on some things. Uh, you can visit the TVW website and find videos there of committees in the state legislature, or you can go to the legislature's website and locate the committee that you're interested in and click on the video links there. And that website is leg.wa.gov. <laughs> and, you know, I sing that song in my head whenever I go online to do research. I just type in L-E-G dot W-A dot G-O-V. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like it, and I'm surprised that uh, the legislature hasn't picked that up um, and incorporated <laughs> it into their website. So. As, their, as part of their branding. I, I yeah. don't know why. <laughs> Well, let's uh, move on to national and uh, probably the biggest item of the week, uh, Tyree Nichols and the release of video that occurred uh, last night, yes. Friday news dump. Yes, Tyre, Tyre Nichols, the case of, uh, of a 29-year-old uh, black man beaten to death by Memphis police. Four videos were released this week showing the arrest and beating of Tyre Nichols by uh, Memphis police on the night of January 7th. In uh, video number one taken from a police body cam, you can see cops rushing up to Nichols' car, yanking open the door and dragging him out of it. No attempt to talk to him first, uh, barely an attempt to even identify who they are. And if you look carefully in the video, you can see that a number of those cars, or at least the ones we can see from the body cam, are unmarked vehicles. Uh, Nichols' voice is very calm, and you can see his hands are in the air. He's trying to surrender peacefully, trying to talk reasonably to those cops, but there are several cops at the same time screaming at him and trying to wrestle him straight to the ground and push him face first in the, into the cold pavement. Nichols, Nichols keeps trying to reason with them and, of course, doesn't get uh, – and he doesn't want to go face down on the pavement and you can't blame him. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, the, of course the cops respond by shooting pepper spray at him. And that's when Nichols breaks away and makes a run for it. And we can't really see from the body cam if the cops were starting to hit him then or not. But my guess is they probably were starting at that point as well. In the longest video, it's uh, labeled video number two. It's taken from a pole mounted police surveillance camera overlooking the scene. You can clearly see cops kicking Nichols in the head while he was on the ground, hitting him multiple times with a police baton, at least three times that I could see, and punching him in the face over and over again while his arms are held behind his back and he's moaning. Nichols yeah. is then finally, after after taking a terrible beating, he's finally handcuffed and left writhing on the ground for more than 20 minutes without any medical attention, even though there's a police paramedic standing nearby ignoring him. Okay, they shine lights directly into his face and you can see him uh, uh, turning, trying to turn away from the light. It's just and he's covered with blood. It's just terrible. 
It's horrifying. Yeah, in another of the videos, you can hear Nichols clearly calling for his mom as the cops tackle him, pepper spray him at least twice, and start beating him, even though he's already on the ground. You can hear him gasping for breath. Nichols was eventually transported to the hospital, but he died three days later. Uh, according to his stepfather, Nichols died of a cardiac arrest and kidney failure because of the beating he took. An autopsy requested by the family showed that Nichols suffered extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. And a photo that the family released to the public showed Nichols in a hospital bed on a ventilator, his entire forehead purple with bruises. And you can see in the video that he was kicked in the head at least twice um, and kicked other perhaps other places as well, and then, of course, punched repeatedly in the face. Now, five cops have been fired and charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. All were members of the Memphis Police Department's Scorpion Unit, which targets street crime. Now, the uh, Memphis police chief said that the Scorpion unit was meant to uh, bring the crime rates down in the highest crime neighborhoods in Memphis. I should point out that uh, the police chief also said that they were meant to uh, uh, bring police visibility to those neighborhoods. But many of those officers drive unmarked cars, which really leads to the to a couple of questions. First of all, how are they bringing visibility of the police to the streets of these neighborhoods when they're riding around in unmarked cars? And secondly, did they try to stop Nichols without him knowing that they were actually police? Because, hey, unmarked cars, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, maybe that's why he tried to evade him in his car. If he's driving through a neighborhood known for higher crime and, you know, people in standard SUVs try to, you know, shove you over, what are you going to do? Are you going to let them stop you? I don't think so. And, of course, the videos show not five cops attacking and beating him, but at least 10 or more officers at the scene, all of whom ignored Nichols while he was obviously slipping into a coma, some of the other things you can see on the videos is that the cops involved pretty quickly knew that they were in trouble and were comparing notes with each other, you know, fairly early on, not, you know, 20 minutes after he was tackled to the ground, but within just, you know, something like seven to 10 minutes, they're saying things to each other like, you know, he swerved and almost hit my car. And at least two of them say he reached for my gun, you know, the usual justification for police brutality, right? Mm -hmm. Several others said things like, you know, he was running and he must be on something. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he's on something. But at one point in in I believe it is video number four towards the end, you can see an older cop saying to the others in a really quiet voice. And I had to turn my 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 volume up to hear it. Did you have to chase him down? Which is. Absolutely the reasonable question at the heart of this, because Nichols' car was left there in the in the middle of the street after he fled. So the cops could have easily just run the plates and gotten his address, then knocked on his door the next day and given him a ticket for reckless driving, right? They didn't have to chase him down. They didn't have to kill him, okay? So, yeah, it is murder. 
And it's being compared to the Rodney King beating in Los Angeles in 1991. But I should point out that Rodney King survived that beating and Tyre Nichols didn't survive on uh, Jan- didn't survive his January 7th um, beating. So here in Seattle, the Seattle Police Officers Guild president, Mike Solon, said, quote, the profession of law enforcement is something to cherish and it's service oriented and tragic events like this, I'm confident, do not reflect the profession as a whole, end quote. So, you know, there you have it. The uh, head of the police union here in Seattle saying, well, there are good cops and bad cops, right? But I want to point out to you that uh, I think it's a culture problem. And uh, when you hear demonstrators say, you know, all cops are bad, what they're saying is it's not a good cops, bad cops problem. It's the culture problem. And it's this idea that it's open season on suspects, right? It, and I want to go back to one more quote from one of the videos from the very first video when that shows him being pulled up, initially pulled over and yanked out of his car. After he runs away, one of the cops is uh, is uh, complaining. You know, he's treating a, uh, another cop for, you know, getting a dose of pepper spray in the eyes. Right. And he's saying, I hope they I hope they, you know, kick that guy's, you know what? You know, I hope mm-hmm. they beat him cr- like crazy. Essentially saying, essentially exposing you to the culture of police departments, basically saying, hey, he ran away. Uh, one of the officers got pepper sprayed by accident. Well, I hope they just beat the crap, the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So there you have it kind of in a nutshell. So this idea that there are good cops and bad cops. Uh, no, that's something we need to move away from. We need to move towards what is the culture and the culture must change.